Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, North Sound. Well, that was really weak. Good morning, North Sound. That's better. So good to see you all this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us today. Uh, Great to uh, be together. Um, I want to particularly welcome a a number of different folks. Pastor Alan and Kathy are back from uh, their sojourn in in Spain, where they had an opportunity to be with family, uh, and uh, we are delighted for them for the opportunity that they had to to be there. They had to... uh, they extended their time, but they still had to rush back because Kari, who is also part of our congregation, their daughter, um, is opening a new place. Jack, I see you. Um, what what kind of is it? A is it called a decorating business or a design or the interior design uh, business here in Edmonds? This is a little plug for Kari uh, in uh, in ja- actually in Jack's building, uh, which is. Is it called the Gre- is the whole building the Gregory? The whole building is the Gregory. So on uh, on fifth, uh, and uh, we also uh, want to welcome Dr. Andor back from uh, her uh, sojourn. Um, she is a scientist who works between Moscow and here, and um, had a, a bit of a challenging time. We were so glad when John said that you had made it to Turkey to Istanbul and were able to. Uh, to come back and to, uh, to be with us here. And then I um, wanted to also welcome uh, Jenny's dad. Uh, nice to have you with us this morning. And also uh, my brother John, who uh, is a part of our uh, extended congregation. About a third of our folks watch online every week, and he is a part of that group. And my sister Vi actually is a part of that group also from Linden. Um, I haven't checked to see if they're a part of the tithing part of the congregation yet or not, but uh, we'll, we'll, see how, uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then I um, wanted to mention Jenny Murphy. Many of you know Jenny has sound styles here in, uh, in Edmonds. Her mom uh, passed away recently. I encourage your prayers for comfort for, uh, for Jenny. Also, uh, in that regard, a couple of... Uh, Services coming up this next weekend on Saturday at 2.30 uh, in the Little White Church for Joanne Schradel. Joanne's been a part of our congregation almost from the beginning, and uh, we, uh, we were so sorry to see her uh, passing, but also uh, the joy of uh, knowing that she's with the Lord. And then uh, just in the last uh, a couple of weeks, Bernice uh, Dreyer passed away, and her service will be on Sunday uh, at uh, 2.30, and we were privileged to have uh, Bernice as a part of this congregation as well. Well, uh, Barb and I are happy to be back uh, with the North Sound family after our missionary trip to the islands of the Pacific, and uh, it's, uh, it, it was fun to get a break. You guys didn't do a very good job of welcoming us back with the weather, though. Snow on Saturday, goodness sakes. Um, it is, I, I increasingly understand, those of you that like to get away for a little bit in the wintertime, it, it is a nice thing to do. So today we begin a new series called The Five Words of Worship. And uh, we are going to talk today about Abba, but I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. 
You may know, uh, may not know that as a church, we have a great relationship with many other churches in Edmonds. About 10 years ago, we decided uh, to uh, draw pastors that were sort of like-minded in a similar place together here in Edmonds, and uh, we have met almost every month uh, since then. And it's wonderful to get together and talk about the work of the Lord in our community and to talk about you, uh, because when you leave this church and you go to CCF or Westgate Chapel or somewhere, um, we can warn them that you're coming, uh, and uh, they warn us, you know, about you all. So uh, it's wonderful to have that kind of a relationship uh, with the pastors in the community and uh, be able to work together for the kingdom here. And it's based upon understanding and trust. There's a story told of a young man who wanted to have his uh, dog uh, have a mass, a service for his dog uh, who had passed away. And so he <coughs> excuse me, went to the priest and uh, asked the priest if he would do a, uh, a mass for his dog. And the priest was indignant and say, you know, we, we, we don't do that sort of thing here. And the guy said, well, I really love my dog, and I'd like you to do a Mass for him. He was somewhat persistent, and the priest said, look, we just don't do that here. And uh, there may be a church of another denomination down the street that may do that for you, but we don't do it here. And so rather reluctantly, kind of head down as he left, he, uh, he said, uh, kind of almost under his breath to himself, he said, well, I was going to offer a million dollars to the church that would do a Mass for my dog. And the priest said, wait, wait a minute. He said, you didn't tell me your dog was Catholic. <laughs> so we are enriched here at North Sound Church with folks from a variety of backgrounds. And if you notice in a service, there are moments when it feels a little Anglican and other moments when it feels a little Pentecostal and other moments when it feels a little Baptist. And uh, we are just blessed by the diversity uh, that you all represent here. In June of 1992, the Cranes, Barry and Barb and Sean and Ryan at that point in time, made a trip to Southern California. And there were several highlights of the trip. One was that Sean had his ninth birthday uh, on underway. And uh, that was the year of the Swiss Army knife. And I don't know if Sean, um, I don't know if nine was too young for that or not. He managed not to hurt himself with that knife. Uh, but that was kind of fun to celebrate and to actually remember that gift because it was a special one for him. Uh, but also on that trip, we did what every family that goes to Southern California has to do when you have kids, and that is we went to Disneyland and had a wonderful time there. We also uh, uh, got together uh, for my, uh, my graduation at Fuller Seminary. And we went to Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena, and uh, this was a, uh, uh, an interesting graduation. It was a long one. It was about three hours long. My Uncle John and my Aunt Ruth were there, and the kids got a kick out of the fact that Uncle John fell asleep uh, during the ceremony. Many of us felt like falling asleep, but we didn't, we didn't actually do that. And uh, the the, uh, the president of Fuller Seminary at that time was a man by the name of David Hubbard. And David Hubbard was an Old Testament professor who also played the clarinet. And so he was a real worshiper, and he brought to the light 
the fact that the Scripture talks about the five words of worship. Now, God gave us the five words of worship, but he's the one that kind of uh, brought them to light and said we need to look at these more carefully. It's interesting because these five words have remained the same throughout history. So Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament was already a translation of the Aramaic into Greek, and then we further have translations from the Greek into English. And there, these words, however, come to us straight from the Aramaic. They come straight forward to us as what we call not translated, but transliterated. So I know I'm using 50-cent words here to begin the sermon, but if you think about the French expression bon voyage, um, it's uh, literally, uh, it means in English, it means a, a, a good trip or good voyage. And so we could translate it, and when somebody is going on a cruise, say to them, well, good trip. But often we will say bon voyage, which is the French word, but we have an understanding in English now what that actually means. And so these words, like bon voyage, are actually transliterated and have come down to us from the original Aramaic. So what are the five words? The first one we're going to look at today is Abba. It's the Aramaic word that conveys intimacy with God as our Father. Hallelujah is the next one, and it has two elements. The first is halal, which means praise. The second is yah, which comes from the word for God, the special word for God for the, for the Jewish people, Yahweh. And so we have God being praised with hallelujah. It's associated with vocal worship. Hosanna in the Old Testament conveys people in despair crying out to God, but by the time we get to the New Testament, it's a more general expression of praise. Maranatha or Maranatha is uh, an expression whose meaning includes both our Lord has come, our Lord come, and it also has the expression or the meaning of God coming in the future. And so Jesus came with the incarnation when he came as a baby in Bethlehem, and then the Holy Spirit is with us today. God is with us through his spirit today. And then we look forward to the second coming, uh, which is essentially the Maranatha of looking forward to his return. And then the final one is the Amen or the Amen, and it is the fitting conclusion to public prayer. When we pray, when Pastor Finney prays, when we get to the end of the prayer, we say amen, and often it isn't just the person that's praying, but it's the whole group of us that say amen, and when we do that, we're saying, so be it. We're agreeing with the prayer that has just taken place. On the cross, Jesus uttered, it is finished, and the amen speaks of the finished work of the cross for our salvation as well. So we're going to start talking uh, about the word Abba. I remember um, being in a, on, a, on a mission trip in Eastern Europe and with a colleague flew back from Hungary to London and we asked the flight attendant on the British Airways flight about where was a good place in London to get seafood and she said, go to a place called Seashells. And so we went to Seashells and we were enjoying our fish and chips and, uh, but several tables away from us 
was this obnoxious person who was loud. I don't know if they had already consumed several pints or what, but not only were they loud, but they were American. And, uh, and, and it was an embarrassment to us because they were living out the ugly American. They were living out the boisterous um, kind of a, of, a, of a boorishness that all too often people around the world have associated with us because unfortunately they have seen the ugly American on occasions. As a, as a, as a, as a nationality, we do tend to be a proud people. We tend to be a people that have uh, gratitude for who we are, for our nation, for how we've gotten here. And, uh, and as a nation, we, we feel that way. But what's interesting is that individually, we are often not so individually proud. And in fact, individually, many of us actually suffer from low self-esteem. In fact, some of the greatest achievers within our culture are those that if you have a private conversation with them or you read their biography later, you discover that they had some struggles in their lives in this regard. They felt not good enough. They felt others better than them. And the tape that runs in the minds of many people is if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. J.B. Phillips was an Anglican minister, and he did one of the first paraphrases of the New Testament. So if you're my age, you grew up on the King James Version. And so one of the early translations of the King James Version, a paraphrase, was the Phillips Version. And uh, that kind of was more colloquial. It brought it down to, uh, to earth. I can remember my dad doing sermons where he would occasionally uh, quote from the, uh, from the Phillips translation of the Scripture. Phillips also wrote the uh, wonderful little book that John has put a slide up called Your God is Too Small. And this book, Your God is Too Small, is very, very helpful for us, especially those of us that may feel a little badly about ourselves, especially privately, because it relates to the problem of feeling badly about our relationship with God and, more importantly, who God actually is. For too many of us, we feel that we're guilty of something called anthropomorphism, and anthropomorphism is where we take who we are as human beings, including our foibles, and we project that on God. So rather than God being who he is and who he's revealed to us, we see God as, a, as an expression of, of ourselves, and, uh, and, and often that doesn't uh, create an adequate picture of who he is. So Phillips talks about some of these projections of God that are less than adequate, in fact, you know, they're called your God is too small. So resident policeman is one of those that some people seem to feel that God's voice is just a voice of conscience. And when we're doing something bad, it's that voice that we hear. And that's essentially the sum total of who God is. There's also a parental hangover. Some psychologists believe that one's early life it is um, determinative for some of the attitudes that we carry into adulthood. And if that applies to us, it's easy for those perhaps bad experiences as children or good experiences get projected onto the nature of who God is. Grand old man is another expression of God. Children often see God as an old man in heaven. 
And if we don't grow out of that, we can still have that perspective of who God is into our adult years. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You remember the old verse for children, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Um, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. It has the unfortunate consequence of making God somewhat insipid and somewhat weak, a, a, a Jesus, a God that is meek and mild, one who does not really know the joy and the passion of life. Absolute perfection is another one. Jesus' comment, be perfect as I am perfect, can be misunderstood, and people who are of good conscience and want to serve God, but, but as human beings are incapable of being perfect, can lead to that guilt that they feel consistently because they're just not measuring up to that. Heavenly bosom is another one. God um, is a place of escape where we go to endure the hardships of life, but unfortunately some never get back to engaging in life and not growing up to face the issues of life with a man from Galilee who addressed life with a robust faith in action. God in a box is another one. To those um, who outside the church, it often feels like God is put in a box by the different denominations and each denomination has their own formula of how you relate to God. Managing director is another one. Those who see God as managing director of the universe do not believe that he has time for me. If you can imagine Bill Gates in the days of Microsoft and his leadership as it was growing, he had his eyes on big stuff and uh, individual employees would say, well, he obviously doesn't have time for me. God's managing the universe. These folks feel like he doesn't have time for them as individuals. Phillips includes other descriptions of God that we can easily imagine God being too small. They include things like secondhand God, perennial grievance, pale Galilean, and others. If we're honest this morning, I think we have to confess that at one time or another, we have had a relationship with a God who is too small. Perhaps it fell in with one of these that I've mentioned this morning or our own unique personal perspective or uh, projection of who God is based upon who we are that has been adequate and doesn't adequately describe who God actually is. We create God sometimes in our own image, not as who he actually is, and as a result, we're robbed of joy and victory in our relationship with him. So what's an adequate picture of God? Well, our first word this morning in describing these five words of worship is Abba. And it's a picture of God the Father initially as it relates to Jesus Christ, as Jesus related to his own Father and the way he addressed his Father. In Mark 14, we have Jesus in the garden. It's that prayer where he is not sure that he, it appears, um, about going to the cross. It's going to be a journey. Now his face is set and he's going to do what he needs to do. But he has this moment. We read uh, in verse 35, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba is the Aramaic word for father, and again, Aramaic was the word that was spoken by Jesus. And interestingly, 
in most cases, if not all, Abba is paired with father, pater, uh, uh, pater in, in Greek. And so you have this double expression of this relationship with father. And so when we read this, we see again that the Abba has so important in a description of its relationship with God as Father that it's not translated. It comes down to us in the original Aramaic. Abba is used in Aramaic primarily within the context of a family, a nuclear family or an extended family. It's a term of intimacy and respect. It conveys the sense of daddy in our English language and it's descriptive of that deep intimacy that Jesus had with his father. It was also spoken of colloquially within families. It was used by early Christians to describe the nature of their relationship with God. I love the story from Joachim Irimaeus, a New Testament scholar, <coughs> who talked about uh, in, a, in a contemporary setting being in an airport in the Middle East. <coughs> Our jetways... Excuse me, our jetways are a fairly new development. <clears throat> and uh, before jetways, you remember, they would wheel up uh, the stairs to the aircraft, and then people would come down, and security wasn't what it was today, and so people could mix with them and run towards them. And in this particular case in the Middle East, Joachim Eremaeus observed a father <clears throat> coming down from the aircraft and a little boy running across the tarmac yelling, Abba, Abba, Abba. That sense of a father that had come home and with which he was in relationship. Paul talks about how we share the sonship with Jesus so that we too might address him as father or as Abba. In Romans 8 we read, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, and because your sons, God sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity that we see the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of sonship. The spirit comes into our heart and cries out, Abba, Father. John 1, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In John chapter 13, we're addressed as little children. In 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we could be called <clears throat> the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Jesus commented that those who had seen him had seen the Father. What does it mean to be beloved children of the Father? Friends, it means that God's compassionate love, as revealed in Jesus Christ, has come to us. Our, no, our Lord not only lived a life of compassion, but we see this wonderful picture revealed in the Son who returned home. I love the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. We don't have time to unpack it this morning, but you may recall the, the general details of the story where a son goes to his father and says, Father, could you give me my inheritance now? Now, if that were to happen to you nowadays, um, at best we would call it rude, 
that a child would come to a parent who was living and say, you know, figure out what your net worth is and uh, give me my share. And in that culture, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, it was horrendous for a child to do that. And yet this young man did that, took the money, you know the story, went to a different country, blew all the money on riotous kind of living, found himself with no money, a strange country, a Jewish lad feeding pigs and eating what was left over from feeding the pigs and finally coming to his senses and saying, you know, my dad's servants get by better than this. I'm going to go home and at least I'll get enough to eat as one of dad's servants. But you know how the story goes. The young man makes his way home and the father is watching for him because the father sees him a long way off. And when the father sees the son, he runs to meet him. And the amazing thing about this story is that a Jewish father in that setting would not do that. It would be a loss of dignity for the father to grab his robe, to pull it up, and to run towards his son. And yet that's what we see in this picture. And he wraps his son, the prodigal son, up in his arms and he welcomes him home. And that's the picture that we have of Abba, the picture of Abba, our daddy, running to meet us regardless of how we've lived our life, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we've done or not done, he runs to meet us. Over the years, many of us have picked up some bad ideas about who God is. And in the final analysis, we have to give up those faulty images of God and recognize him as daddy, recognize him as Abba, we find our identity as the beloved child of God. It's one thing for us to muse on that on Sunday morning, for us to ponder that idea, but it's another thing for us to take that and to apply it to our lives daily and hourly. Henry Nouwen writes about how we need to apply the knowledge that we are the beloved of Abba to our everyday lives. <clears throat> he says what is required to become the beloved in the common pieces, common places of my daily existence, and bit by bit to close the gap that exists between what I know myself to be and the countless specific realities of everyday life. Becoming the beloved is pulling the truth revealed to me from above down to the ordinariness of what I am. In fact, thinking of, talking about, and doing our to our. Friends, to get over our faulty concepts of God, we need to consciously apply the knowledge that we are Abba's child, that we are beloved of our Father. In John 13, we have a description of the Last Supper. There's a powerful event that we can easily slip over when we read this story. And we read about it in verse 23. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. The disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. I'm grateful to Brennan Manning, who is now with the Lord, for sharing 
much of what it means to be Abba's child. Um, I recommend his book by the same title if you want to go a little deeper. He comments on how John learned much from Jesus, not just in hearing him, not just in his teaching, not just in observing his miracles, but by leaning against his chest and feeling his heartbeat. He tells a story that I conclude with this morning of what it means to call our father Abba. He says the old man's daughter had asked the local priest to come and pray with her father. When the priest arrived, he found the man lying in bed with his head propped up on two pillows and an empty chair beside his bed. The priest assumed the old fellow had been informed of his visit. I guess you were expecting me, he said. No, who are you? I'm the new associate at your parish, the priest replied, and when I saw the empty chair, I figured you knew I was going to show up. Oh yeah, the chair, said the bedridden man. Would you mind closing the door? Puzzled, the priest shut the door. I've never told anyone this, not even my daughter, said the man, but all of my life I've never known how to pray. The Sunday Mass, I used to hear the pastor talk about prayer, but it went right over my head. Finally, I said to him one day in sheer frustration, I get nothing out of your homilies on prayer. Here, says my pastor, reaching into the bottom drawer of his desk, read this book by Hans Erst von Balthasar. He is a Swiss theologian. It's the best book on contemplative prayer in the 20th century. Well, Father, says the man, I took the book home and tried to read it. But in the first three pages, I had to look up 12 words in the dictionary. I gave the book back to my pastor, thanked him, and under my breath whispered for nothing. I abandoned any attempt at prayer, he continued, until one day about four years ago, my best friend said to me, Joe, prayer is just a simple matter of having a conversation with Jesus. Here's what I suggest. Sit down on a chair, place an empty chair in front of you, and in faith, see Jesus on the chair. It's not spooky because he promised I'll be with you always. Then just speak to him and listen in the same way you're doing with me right now. So, Father, I tried it, and I've liked it so much that I do it a couple of hours every day. I'm careful, though, if my daughter saw me talking to an empty chair, she'd either have a nervous breakdown or send me off to the funny farm. The priest was deeply moved by the story. Excuse me, and encouraged the old guy to continue on the journey. Then he prayed with him, anointed him with oil, and returned to the rectory. Two nights later, the daughter called to tell the priest that her daddy had died that afternoon. Did he seem to die in peace, he asked. Yes, when I left the house around two o'clock, he called me over to his bedside, told me one of his corny jokes, kissed me on the cheek, And when I got back from the store an hour later, I found him dead. But there was something strange, Father. In fact, beyond strange, kind of weird. Apparently, just before Daddy died, he leaned over and rested his head on the chair beside his bed. Friends, Abba's love calls us to the joy of intimacy with him today and one day will call us, call all of us to rest our heads in his lap as he calls us home. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you this morning for the fact that we're your children.
and we can have an intimacy of relationship with you whereby you call us your children and we call you Abba, our Daddy, our Father. Today I ask, Lord, that you would help us to live in the love of Abba. And when that day comes for each one of us to be able to place our head in your lap as you call us home, in Jesus' name, amen.